just after lunch on May 16, 1986, at the Cokeville Elementary School in southwest Wyoming, near the Idaho border. Some of the younger students had just returned from a teddy bear picnic at the city park. And in Carol Peterson's second grade classroom, the children had just gathered in reading groups when a strange woman walked into the room. The woman, whose name was Doris Young, and her husband David had, just minutes ago, parked in front of the school and unloaded a gasoline bomb affixed to a rolling cart, along with four rifles and nine handguns. They immediately entered the school and confronted the front office personnel by claiming that this was a revolution, handing out broadsides marked zero equals infinity, which contained their manifesto claiming they wanted to start a brave new world. The man, David Young, had been the sheriff of Cokeville six years previous for a period of six months. He told the principal to get on the phone now to the White House and demand a $2 million ransom for each child in the school. As you can imagine, the front office was left in shock trying to look at the broadsides that they'd been handed, which didn't make any sense, seeing the guns, seeing the bomb, and seeing these two lunatic adults who had actually walked in with David's youngest daughter from his first marriage, although after walking in, she turned around and walked out. Before anyone in the front office could react, the woman started down the hall saying, there's an emergency in room two, bring your children and come quickly. Second grade teacher Peterson thought it was strange to be taking her students toward an emergency. But when the woman insisted, Peterson lined up her 24 students and followed. Pretty soon, every child and every teacher in the school was ushered into that 30 by 30 foot room, where an unshaved, disheveled man with a reddish beard stood in the middle, holding on to a cart. The room smelled like gasoline, and there were guns lined up against the chalkboard. These kinds of things don't happen in Wyoming, Peterson thought while fighting to keep down a rise of panic trying to well up from deep inside her. But the children needed a leader, so she remained calm. She noticed that the bomb's trigger was a clothespin attached to the man's wrist with a shoelace. There were now 136 children, six faculty, nine teachers, and three other adults, including a job applicant and a UPS driver in the overcrowded room. The man told them he was starting a revolution. He issued his statement for his revolution and then demanded $2 million for each child in the room and added the expected order, try to call the police or interfere with us in any way and we'll detonate this bomb. It was all like a bad dream, absolute insanity. And by any standards of measurement, when that bomb did explode, everyone in that room should have been incinerated. Yet, they weren't. What happened that day in Cokeville, Wyoming has been the subject of a number of books and movies, and the story is a truly incredible one. Stay tuned for The Miracle in Cokeville at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries.
Welcome back, everybody, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is the story of the Cokeville Miracle. Principal Max Ewell, in his office, tried without luck to relay the request to the White House and President Reagan. The FBI was alerted, and soon police were surrounding the school, causing a tense situation outside as first police and later, worried parents began to surround the perimeter. Inside the room, it became obvious that the man and the woman would be waiting for their ransom demands to be met. The gasoline vapors permeated the room. The guns were lined up against the wall behind Young and his wife. The teachers quietly asked if they could bring in books, art supplies, and even a television in an effort to keep the children occupied and keep the insanity from escalating. The children attempted songs and activities, but by the second hour they were getting scared and anxious. David's wife, Doris Young, tried numerous times to calm them by telling them, think of it as an adventure movie, or this will be a great story to tell your grandchildren. But her insanely out of place efforts weren't going far. David was getting increasingly agitated with the children. After two hours had passed, and on their own, the children took turns praying. And as they began this, according to reports given later, a strange but very comforting calmness fell upon the children. In the movie that followed this incident, titled The Cokeville Miracle, there was a very moving scene in which one second grade boy, when he was finished praying, looked over at the homegrown terrorists with a look of calm that transfixed David Young for a few seconds. He had brought the potential of death and destruction and fear to the school, and not only were teachers calmly singing with their young students, but children who should be crying for their mommies were looking at him with an inspired calmness and lack of fear. Cameron Wixom, a sixth grader, played with about a dozen of his fellow students, Kneeling, we bowed our heads and folded our arms. The feeling after the prayer was one of total confidence that we had just placed our lives in the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. It was like our part was completely done and it was just a matter of time. One survivor recalls a kindergarten teacher inviting her to join the teacher and some students in prayer, an unfamiliar concept for that fifth grader. I told her I didn't know how to pray, she later shared. The teacher said, you don't have to know how. So I crawled over and folded my arms and bowed my head. I don't remember much of what she said, but I remember suddenly feeling like I had a warm blanket around my shoulders. This incredible amount of comfort and joy that I couldn't explain. I knew in my heart that I would be okay no matter what happened. Another fifth grader, Lori Nate Conger, also prayed with some of her classmates. I remember thinking, David Young can control a lot of things, but he can't keep us from praying. That's one thing he cannot do, she said. Some kids were sobbing. Many were complaining of headaches from the gasoline smell. And Young was getting frustrated. At about 3.45 p.m., Young handed the shoelace and clothespin switch to his wife, 
and went to a small bathroom that connected the first and second grade rooms. A few minutes later, there was an explosion, apparently set off when the woman accidentally moved her arm the wrong way. Witnesses remember seeing her fly across the room like a flaming torch. The room immediately went dark and filled with smoke. You couldn't see in front of you. All you could do was feel, remembers Jody Pope Keach, who was a kindergartner then. Some of the children's clothes and hair were smoldering. Teachers put out the fires and pushed some of the children out the windows. When your feet hit the ground, run, Keach remembers a teacher telling them. It was an explosion that I can't explain. A total instant black, the kind of black that you can't see anything, remembered Katie Walker Payne, who was a first grade student at the time. I felt compression and heat like nothing I'd ever experienced. I heard teachers screaming for everyone to get down. I looked in the center of the room, and all I could see was fire. There were flames all over the room and children screaming. Just pandemonium, recalls Carol Peterson, a second grade teacher at the time. Another teacher was trying to help me escape. I said, I don't know where my children are. I can't leave. But he yelled, get out, get out. Children and teachers escaped through windows and the classroom door. Williams recalls, when I got to the hallway, I felt a tickling sensation on my shoulder and ear. I took a few steps and started feeling heat on my skin. I realized I was on fire. She dropped to the floor and started rolling to put out the flames. Soon two teachers ran to her aid and slapped the flames out with their bare hands. Then they picked me up and told me to run. As the children escaped, David Young began firing a gun inside the smoke-filled classroom. Outside, the music teacher, John Miller, lay on the ground, his white shirt soaked in dark red blood. None of the children were hit, but Miller was shot in the back as he helped others out of the burning school. Miller would later recover. Frantic parents gathered behind police barricades cried out for their children as police officers ran toward the school. Ambulances, fire trucks, and news cameras lined the streets. I saw bodies all over the lawn, and I didn't know if they were dead or alive, one of the hostages recalled years later. Everyone was just so black that you couldn't recognize anyone. Some kids were badly burned, with skin hanging off their arms and necks. I didn't even know where to go or what to do. I found my older brother pretty quickly, and we just started walking toward our home. Then I saw my mom running down the street. I'll never forget that reunion when she ran toward us and wrapped us in her arms. For the first time, I remember thinking, I'm safe. It's something I will never forget. Another survivor who was severely burned in the explosion experienced a different kind of miracle after being rushed to the hospital. My hair and eyelashes were gone. My face was completely unrecognizable, she recalls. All the nurses cried as they cleaned my wounds, she said. And the doctor was talking to my parents about skin grafts and plastic surgery. I remember that same feeling I felt in the classroom when I prayed, she recalled. I felt deep peace. 
I experienced an incredible feeling of being known and loved. I was told my scars would completely heal and no one would look upon my face and know what had happened. Instead, the scars I would have to heal from would be those of forgiveness and trust. My skin began to heal at a rapid rate and despite the severe burns, no scar tissue formed. Over time, my skin healed completely and today I carry no scars from the events of that day. But that wasn't the greatest miracle I experienced. The true miracle was not that I survived or that the third degree burns I suffered healed without a trace. It was that I learned that I was not alone in this world. Outside, parents who had been kept out of sight of the classroom windows by the police frantically began trying to find their children. Carl! Where's my Carl? Peterson remembers a father screaming. The man was kneeling, frantically pulling up grass and throwing it over his shoulder. No one knew how many children might still be inside the building, dead or injured. No one knew whether other bombs might still explode. The classroom and the area outside were pandemonium. Ambulances and paramedics were on hand, and more were soon on the way from surrounding communities. But it turned out that there were no other explosions. That's part of the miracle, say Cokeville residents. For some unknown reason, only one of the bomb's five blasting caps went off. According to investigators at the time, if the bomb had functioned properly, it would have blown off the side of the building. And there were lots of other smaller miracles, too, residents say. When firefighter Lyle Forrest entered the smoke-filled classroom to look for children, he found himself crawling on a pile of guns, hands, knees, and feet bumping over the actions but none of them went off. The kindergartner Keach tells about the ambulance she rode into Star Valley. The fan belt broke on the way to the hospital. Two truckers stopped to help, and one of them had a fan belt that fit exactly. There were many stories of divine providence that came from that day. In the end, although 79 people were injured, only David and Doris Young died. According to police, it appears that Young shot his burning wife when he came back from the bathroom after the explosion. Then he went back into the bathroom and shot himself. Not one of the investigators that came later to remove and defuse the bomb could explain what had prevented all four of the explosive tubes from igniting, especially when one of the attached four had ignited, and gasoline is a highly flammable liquid, obviously. The miracle of Cokeville had apparently been one gigantic stroke of luck in that all the innocent lives were spared. But in the hours and days that followed, as the children began to share their stories with their parents, stories of something other than luck came through in those stories and drawings of what had happened that day. In an interview for an article titled The Astonishing True Story Behind the Cokeville Miracle Movie, Writer-reporter Jamie Armstrong spoke with Ron Hartley. We've added a link to this article in the show notes. You can check it. And Ron Hartley was the lead investigator for the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office. Hartley said that when he arrived at the scene, he was immediately told that the physical evidence didn't add up. And he was invested 
He had four kids in that school. I met the bomb tech right there at the door, and he said, Hartley, what you have here is a miracle. That bomb should have leveled the wing of this school, but it looks like the bomb blast went straight up. I don't know why. I can't explain it. In the days after the bombing, more astonishing evidence came to light. Investigators discovered that wires to three of the bomb's five blasting caps had been mysteriously cut, preventing detonation. Furthermore, the explosive powder that should have lit the air on fire had been miraculously hindered from its deadly purpose thanks to the leaking gasoline. And though the walls were pockmarked from shrapnel, not a single child was hit with any of it. Everybody kept saying, Is this a miracle? But I took it as luck, said Hartley. Armstrong wrote, His perspective changed dramatically a couple weeks later. However, when his six-year-old son confided in a psychologist that he had seen angels on the day of the bombing, I came home with the intent of factually proving to him that he could not have seen angels, Hartley recalled. I asked him who he saw, and he said, I don't know. She didn't tell me your name, but I think it was Grandma Meister. This was exactly what I was looking for. I told him. It wasn't Grandma Meister, because she's alive and living in Pinedale. But the young boy insisted that his story was true. And that's when Hartley asked his wife to get out the family photo album. We put it on the table right in front of him, and I started flipping through the pages. I flipped to one page, when suddenly he put his little hand on a photo and just beamed. When you do interrogations in law enforcement, you watch for body language. You can tell through physical reactions when someone is lying and when they're not, he continued. When my son saw that picture, he just brightened up and said, That's her. That's my angel. And it wasn't Grandma Meister. It was my Grandma Elliot. How do you argue that? She'd been dead for three or four years. Hartley's son told him there were angels for everyone in the room that day. And just prior to detonation, the angels joined hands around the bomb and went up through the ceiling with the explosion. When he said that, it lined up with the physical evidence. That, in addition to the fact that he picked out Grandma Elliot, is evidence I can't deny. In the book, Witness to Miracles, and again, we provided a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes, you'll find many stories of children who reported seeing angels in the classroom that day. Glenna Walker's children saw a beautiful lady who told them to go over near the window. Other children reported seeing an angel over every child's head. The angels appeared through the room's ceiling as the testimony and children's drawings told. To be fair, others said they saw no angels. In a book of memories that was offered at the 20th remembrance of the bombing, other children also gave accounts of heavenly intervention, and in the months after the bombing, more of them were able to identify ancestors who helped keep them safe on that day. One survivor entered, As I sat coloring, I looked up and saw a woman dressed in a long white dress, she had short, 
dark brown hair. She said to me, Katie, I love you very much. You need to listen to your brother and remember that I will always love you. I remember just nodding my head. I looked down for a second, and when I looked back up, she was gone. Soon after that, my brother came over and told me we were going to go sit by the window. I followed him and sat down, and then he went and got my sister. He told us he had to tell his friends he was going to sit with us, and he would be right back. He walked across the room, and the bomb detonated. Eight months later, the young girl learned who the woman in white was when her mother pulled out an old locket. I kept telling my parents about the lady who had talked to me and that I didn't know who she was, she recalled later. But I knew the instant my mom opened that locket that it was her. My mom then told us that that was her mom, our grandma, who had died when my mom was only 15. A first grade survivor had a similar experience. I had who I thought was a teacher help me out of that burning classroom that I didn't know, she says. I don't remember her saying anything to me, but I trusted and followed her out of the burning room. I turned around once to go back for a shoe that had come off when I was trying to escape, but she motioned for me to keep coming through the bathroom entryway, and I followed. As that survivor continued to attend Cokeville Elementary after the Cokeville miracle, she searched for the teacher who had helped her that day. Years later, when she was about 12 years old, she finally learned the identity of the mysterious woman. While looking through a family album with her grandmother, she stopped at a familiar face, and she asked, what grade did this woman teach, and why did she quit teaching after the bombing? My grandma Toomer looked at the picture of her Aunt Ruth, whom I was referring to, and said she'd never been a teacher that she knew of, and she wasn't from Cokeville. I explained that she was the teacher who led me out when the bomb went off. With tears in her eyes, Grandma explained to me that there's no way she could have been there because she had died earlier in the 80s. I continued to tearfully testify that she was there and that she saved me. To commemorate the 20th remembrance of the miracle, a group called the Cokeville Miracle Foundation compiled a 500-page book full of reminiscences written by many of the people who lived through that day. Teachers, parents, emergency workers, the child hostages who are now all grown up. The story as compiled conveys the community's certainty that random luck had nothing to do with the town's good fortune. And just to drive home the point, the front cover includes, in letters that stretch from top to bottom, the words, In God We Trust. Rather than dwelling on the fact that scary things can happen, that bad guys can show up even in a place as out of the way and innocent as Cokeville, the Grassroots Cokeville Miracle Foundation chose to remember the bombing as proof that their prayers were answered. Skeptics among us will pose the question, why are most people not saved then? Why are there even accidents? Why do good people and children have to die? Where are the angels for all those prayers? Those are hard questions to answer. The best answer I ever heard is that divine intervention exists, but it is random. The keystone to the Christian religion, the Bible, 
teaches Christians that faith can move mountains. Entire religions, for instance, Christian science, have been built on the premise that faith can heal. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that our Creator promised humanity an eternal rose garden. Mankind is still victim to accidents, death, and disease, and was given the choice to live life on earth as He pleases. The choice of free will, as it's often called. Evil exists, and good exists, and many people believe that there is a constant battle between the two to see which will prevail. When it comes to angels, one could reason that there are only two answers possible. The first is, there are no angels. People have visions, especially during desperate times when they're willing to reach out for any plausible answer or solution. They think they see angels or that God spoke to them. Those are delusions, non-believers say. The second and only other possible answer is that angels do exist. Why, where, and when they intervene is unknown and unpredictable. According to history, they have appeared, at least once in the 20th century, to issue a warning to a world at war, as they did during the event in Portugal during World War I, known as the Miracle of the Sun, which was witnessed by 17,000 people, including the media and fully credentialed professors. We did an episode on that, called The Miracle of the Sun, and it's quite a story. And the day that that miracle in Portugal was to take place was told to three shepherd girls who spread the word. And that word spread fast. And both the faithful and the faithless arrived by the thousands and witnessed a genuine miracle. The kicker? It's very hard for skeptics to deny or otherwise explain a predicted miracle in a predicted place, predicted one month ahead to the day. Then there are many stories of people who have been pulled from dangerous circumstances by seen or unseen forces, which many of those people describe as divine intervention. A portion of these described as angels, which, according to many recipients of their kindnesses, appear as regular people. In Cokeville, the book and the 20th Anniversary Remembrance Program were not about dredging up past horrors, said Mayor Carla Toomer to a reporter at the time. And it's not about publicity, she said. Toomer admitted that some people would have been just as happy if the media never showed up. Gratitude and healing were the goals, she said. 187 people wrote entries for the book, and some former residents returned to Cokeville for the event. There have been news accounts and anniversary stories and books and a made-for-TV movie about that day. I saw the movie, and it's first class and powerfully done. David Young was a former Cokeville resident who had moved to Tucson, Arizona. He had been the town's only police officer for six months in 1979, before he was fired. Investigators found 41 rambling journals that had been in his possession, including one in which Young called 1986 the year of the biggie. On the day of the bombing, Young had handed out a typewritten document that quoted Socrates and Shakespeare and his own equation, zero equals infinity. He had initially talked more people than just his wife Doris into the crazy plan. 
Two men waiting in a van out front of the school during the crisis were questioned, then handcuffed and taken into custody. It turns out they were pals of Young who initially signed on but thought the better of it when they arrived at the school. Unbelievable, but true. Twenty years later, the smell of stale gasoline can still make Jody Keach nauseous and men with beards make her anxious. Firefighter and EMT Stephen Moore still chokes up when he recalls the most vivid part of that day. The sight of my daughter in a truck, safe, going down the highway with my sister. I'll remember that till the day I die. His wife, he says, still can't talk about any of it. EMT Debbie Sparks says one of her younger sisters, who was a hostage, will always get up and walk out of the room if anyone brings up the bombing. But the town needs to remember it, Sparks says. We need to remember it to remember how blessed we are. The current crop of elementary school children aren't taught about the bombing, but most know the general story, if not all the details, says Keach. I tell them about it if they ask, says kindergarten teacher Janelle Dayton, but I don't go out of my way to tell them. They're not scared by it, said Firefighter Moore. For a young kid, that's old history. When their parents were little. When dinosaurs were roaming the earth, he laughs. The classroom, the bomb room, children called it for several years, is now a computer lab. It was more than 30 years after the miraculous events transpired in the tiny town of Cokeville, Wyoming, that movie producer T.C. Christensen, whose works include 17 Miracles and Ephraim's Rescue, felt it was time to share those events with the world. I knew this was an amazing story and one I felt that I needed to tell, he said. There are so many people, about 30 of them, who stand as witnesses to the spiritual blessings that happened that day. The magic of TC's vision is that it's a film for everyone, added actor Sean Stevens, who played the character of John Teichert in the film. Because Christensen's faith-promoting film is based on actual events, he wanted it to be both authentic and accurate, and this included filming key scenes of the Cokeville miracle on location in Cokeville, Wyoming, which created the unique opportunity of involving the actual survivors in the community and people in the community. Many of the extras in the film are children of those who were students at the time the bond went off, Christensen explains. There are also a couple scenes where parents are outside the school being held back by police. Those are also Cokeville people. It's a very emotional scene. I would have thought I would have had to have actors to portray that, but those people knew what it felt like. That trauma of family members being held captive or themselves being held captive? We just did a few takes of those scenes and we had all we needed. There was really a sense of reverence on the set because we knew that we were dealing with a real event, said Stevens. And on the set, there were many people who were real survivors of that event. Director Christensen was very cautious and sensitive to everybody's feelings. Survivor Jenny Sorensen Johnson's children were among the movie extras. They wanted to do it for me, she said. They knew that it was extremely hard for me to be on the set, but it really helped my anxiety to process the events of that day. The knowledge of their experience has shaped my life personally, and now with this movie, even more lives can be blessed with the knowledge 
of what help there is on the other side. We pressed forward knowing that this story needed to be told and that the benefits would far outweigh the hardships. I hope that people come away from the film impressed by the power of prayer, that if they've not been using prayer in their lives, they might start, he said. I hope people believe that if God intervened and helped these people, maybe, just maybe, he can intervene and help them with the problems in their lives too. Good advice. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. If you enjoyed this episode, please send us a review, either to Apple Podcast app if you're an Apple listener, or an email to me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com or at facebook.com 1001heroes. Here are some recent reviews. This one, brilliant podcast, great narration, excellent knowledge of the stories. Thank you for doing what you're doing, and please keep on doing what you're doing, John. I wish I could give you more stars. Mark Swindles in the UK. And this one, superb, one of my favorites. That's from Jazz Rue via Apple Podcasts in the U.S. And this one, all shows. The Voices of Treason episode was, wow, interesting insight into what people did to spread the propaganda word. You get the idea that at least some of these broadcast traders weren't believing what they were saying, and if they did, they were just delusional. And that's from Jerry G, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, in a class by itself, from Liberty Psych, U.S., It's not just that the stories are great, it's the way they're told, with unpretentious sincerity and love of storytelling. So refreshing when many podcasts come across as smarmy, condescending. Thank you for doing what you do. And this one, the best podcast ever. Mr. Hagedorn, your 1001 podcasts are the best podcasts I've ever listened to. I drive a truck for a living. Therefore, I have the ability to binge listen to your shows for hours and hours each day, for which I'm very thankful for. Thank you so very much for what you do. And please, keep it coming. That from KPaint84, U.S. And this one from Cliff McAllister, five stars. Fun and always interesting. The podcast makes available information I didn't even know I wanted to know about. Keep them coming. Thank you all very, very, very much for taking the time to send us those reviews. We appreciate them very much, and they help us in the rankings. Please enjoy our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.